you have your Bibles, uh, please turn to Acts chapter 8. We are uh, slowly but surely making our way through uh, the book of Acts. Um, and, and as you turn there, I actually want to remind you of something that uh, happened right away in the book of Acts. In chapter 1, verse 8, um, Jesus said to his followers, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And certainly we have seen the early church be the witness of Christ in Jerusalem. I mean, the church has just exploded in Jerusalem, but we've not seen it really go beyond that yet. And, and now we fast forward to chapter 8. And you might remember, if you weren't with us last week, you wouldn't remember that uh, uh, Stephen was was just martyred. He, he just died for his faith. And we come to Acts chapter 8, and it starts off this way. It says, And Saul approved of his execution, his being Stephen's. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for, when unclean, or for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. And I don't know about you, but I get to verse 8 and I, I read joy, and I just didn't expect that to follow what, what started in verses 1 through 3. Right? In verses 1 through 3, we see this approval uh, of, of Stephen, the first martyr, um, and, and persecution just ramps up. And then within a few verses, by the time we hit verse 8, we read about a city filled with joy. So as I come to this passage, I have to ask, what, what happened from, from verse 1 to verse 8, to, from death and imprisonment to now joy? Well, verses 1 through 3 set the scene, and as Matt preached on uh, the end of chapter 7 last week, we were introduced to Saul, who right now is the great persecutor of the church. I mean, he was brutal towards believers, but we'll read in, in just a few short chapters of his radical conversion to one who loves Jesus, who want, to one who, who speaks about Jesus and is willing to suffer for the name of Jesus. But right now in chapter 8, this persecution is so great, it's so intense that many, many Christians fled Jerusalem. They left their home to escape the persecution. And in verses 1 through 3, as I read them, I almost it feels like a movie scene to me. I, I picture something like Nazis coming through a town and looking for Jews to take away to the concentration camp. But instead of Nazis, it's Saul and his enforcers going door to door, you know, maybe shoving their way past a homeowner who claims there's no one in their house that follows Jesus, maybe tearing up the house, looking for followers of the way in hiding, dragging both men and women out that proclaim that Jesus is Lord and throwing them in prison. 
And as we look at church history all over the world, you pretty quickly realize that Christians face persecution. This is just how it goes. Um, how it's been for us in America is really an anomaly in Christian history. But the surprising fact is that the church often grows when faced with persecution, right? We can look no further than uh, the church in China. And there are uh, some that, that believe there's church tradition that says that Thomas, doubting Thomas, brought the gospel to China after he was in India. Um, and we, we don't know that for sure, but at least by the seventh century, there were believers in China. China has a, a rich, rich heritage of Christians. But fast forward all the way to 1807. There, there weren't a ton of Christians in China at that time. There was a missionary named Robert Morris who came to China, and he was there for almost 30 years. He translated the Bible into Chinese. He started a college. He uh, wrote a Chinese-English dictionary. I mean, he, he did a lot of work in China. But in his, in his 30 years in China, he said that he only knew of, he was only aware of 10 Chinese converts to Christianity. That's not a ton of fruit over almost three decades, but his work truly did lay the groundwork for other missionaries who would come after him in China. Uh, by the 1920s, there were nearly 8,000 missionaries in China, including probably the most famous Hudson Taylor. There were around 500,000 Christians. There's uh, about 250,000 Chinese uh, students in Protestant schools. But by the 1960s, uh, the, the time for the church in China was getting really hard. Uh, in 66, Mao uh, was really, uh, he pushed communism throughout China, attempting to really wipe out uh, different religions, including Christianity. There were some at that time who predicted that Christianity would, would, would be finished in China within a generation. So Christians scattered. Uh, missionaries were forced to leave. It did not look good for the church in China. But you know what the church did? It grew in the face of persecution. It's estimated by the late 1970s uh, that the church had grown to almost 6 million Christians, right, without Western missionaries. By the mid-2000s, there are some who estimated that the church was well over 100 million, maybe as much as 130 million, with the low estimate being closer to 80 million. So we've got to remember that even when persecution comes, man, God is at work and he's often growing his church. One thing that amazes me about God is he, he doesn't waste hardship. He doesn't waste pain. Like, yes, we rejoice when life is going well, when, when God is blessing us in that way. But when circumstances are unpleasant, do not think that God is not with you or that God is not at work. He's honored through the suffering of his people as they continue to trust in him, as they continue to speak about him. It is so often through the hardest circumstantial times that Christians can later look back and see God's providence and grace most clearly. So how do the early believers here just after Stephen's death respond to this persecution? Well, they didn't blame Stephen. They could have, right? They, they could have blamed him. They could have been mad at him. They could have said, man, Stephen, why did you call them stiff-necked? Why did you say that they always resist the Holy Spirit? Well, why didn't you tell them about Jesus in just sort of this invitational way of, of, of this God that loves them rather than rebuking them? 
Our lives are so much worse off now because of, of Stephen's speech. That's not how they reacted. That's not what Luke tells us. Verse 2 it says, devout men buried their brother. Right? They honored him in his death. They buried the one who proclaimed Christ until the end. It says that they lamented over Stephen. And, and lament is, uh, I found a simple definition. It's, it's a prayer in pain that leads to trusting God. And, and um, at some point, I don't know if it, exactly at this time, but it was actually illegal to lament, to mourn over uh, someone that was executed. So if that's true at this time, like, there was great risk in them doing this. We do find out that not everyone left Jerusalem. The apostles stayed, and Luke really doesn't tell us much why, but, but much of the church was dispersed by this persecution. And the dispersed believers, we find out, end up in Judea and Samaria, right where Jesus told them that they would go in Acts 1-8, these two unreached places that Jesus, Jesus had said they would be his witness. Well, perhaps if this persecution hadn't happened, some of them maybe would have gone to Judea uh, or Samaria. Um, but I would be shocked if, if nearly as many would have gone without this persecution. It's through the persecution that we can see God's providence. Right? He made his people for a mission, to make disciples of the world. And they had been faithful to that in Jerusalem. Right, The, the growth of the church in Jerusalem was off the charts. By this point, it's, it's maybe 15,000, 20,000 believers the church was on fire, but now because of the persecution, that fire had spread. The embers had flown to two yet unreached places, and those embers would light new fires for Christ. Man, I just think back in my own life, how many times have I needed God to give me a push in a direction? Right? Sometimes a little nudge, sometimes I need way more than a little nudge because I was either stuck or scared, and, and God gave me the push that I needed. But the persecution, it was certainly hard on the early church. And yet you can see God's hand in all of it, using this attack on these believers to spread the gospel. And he told them that persecution would come. He told them that persecution would come, and in fact, it would be their opportunity to witness. Back in Luke chapter 21, Jesus said in verses 12 and 13, But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought out before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. A couple sermons ago, I, I recapped the persecution, the, the beatings, the imprisonments, right? The Lord had been preparing his church for this moment. They had been through uh, kind of a, a persecution boot camp. Right? They had learned to lean on the Lord as they faced outside attacks. They learned to trust in God and continue to speak about Jesus. And, and really, that's the first thing that, that I see here uh, that, that takes us from persecution to joy in just a few verses, is that as believers went, as they were spread, they continued to speak about Jesus. Were, were they fearful? Yeah, fearful enough to leave their homes. But it didn't stop them from speaking about Jesus in their new homes. And I wonder, would that be true of me? Would that be true of you? If you had to pick up or, or chose to pick up and move to a new place, um, just a couple months ago, we said goodbye to Jeremy and Jennifer. And, 
and their two daughters. They recently moved to Tennessee. And as I was going through this, uh, this verse, and I was thinking about them. And I, I, I bet money that the people that live around Jeremy and Jennifer within the next two years, they will hear about Jesus. And not just once, they will hear about him many, many times. I'm not saying that they'll all become Christians. I have no idea how the Lord might use them, but, but I know this because especially Jennifer, like she would tell me just in passing about this, this person that she'd gotten to share the gospel with that day or this, this person that she was praying for. How many people ended up coming and checking our church because of Jeremy and Jennifer? I recently heard someone say that we will evangelize about the things that we truly love. Right, so you, uh, if you love the Seahawks, you're going to talk to people about the Seahawks, even people that don't have a clue what the twelfth man is, uh, or if you love something on Netflix, right, some some series, you're going to talk about that. Grandparents can't help but talk about their grandkids. We talk about what we love, right? Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So, what is the overflow of our hearts? Is it to speak about Jesus? As the early church scattered, these Jesus-sharing embers flew to new places. And what happened is these new little fires started as people responded to the gospel. Is that true of you? Is that true of me? When I first trusted in Christ, I couldn't stop speaking about Jesus. And I'm sure there are all kinds of mistakes that I made. I'm sure there's conversations I forced myself into that, that I just really didn't have the best approach. But man, I, I was just so excited about Christ. I was so excited to tell people about the love of God. I was just blown away when, when I realized my sin and I realized that forgiveness in Christ was, was real. I just, I couldn't help but talk about it, right? I'd, I'd write about it. I remember this, this poor English teacher of mine, she'd give us like a lot of leeway in what we could write about. She'd give us like a kind of a broad topic and then we just go for it. And I was just writing about Jesus in every paper and pretty soon she kind of narrowed what we had to write about. Um, but but the, I remember early on in high school, I, I realized that the first week of school, there were going to be a lot of chances to talk about Jesus. The, the very first day of school, every class was going to do the same thing pretty much. They're going to say, hey, what, what did you do this summer? Tell us about your summer. I just got to talk about Christ. And I, had, uh, I had a ton of Mormon friends in middle school. In high school, and we talked religion all the time. I had, my best friend was a Mormon, and we'd get out the Book of Mormon and my Bible, and, and I was attempting to show him, like, yeah, we're both talking about a guy named Jesus, but we believe very different things. We're either talking about different Jesus or one of us is wrong. And he fast forward to Bible college. Uh, I wanted to become a youth pastor. And suddenly I'm in this Christian environment and I loved it. I'd never been around so many Christians. I, I still had, like weeks ago, I talked about that job at that restaurant where I was working the salad bar. So I, I had this job where I was around uh, non-Christians and, and got to tell them about Jesus. But then, you know, about a year later, I, I was offered an internship at my church. And, and pretty soon, without realizing it, I was almost exclusively around Christians. And then I make it through Bible college, and I get a job in a church uh, right after Bible college, and, and, and I didn't realize what was going on, but my, my Jesus-sharing muscles had atrophied. I didn't know it was happening, but, but soon I realized, like, man, I'm not as bold as I used to be, or I would see an opportunity to talk about Christ with, with someone that didn't know him, someone that, you know, that wasn't in my church, and, and I would... 
I'd, I'd rationalize a reason that I wasn't going to share. The phrase use it or lose it really applies to me, I think, with sharing the gospel. And, and don't get me wrong, there are times where I'm full of courage and bold, and, and there are times where I've talked myself out of sharing for any number of reasons. It, it is interesting being a, a pastor and, and meeting people, uh, and I don't necessarily avoid telling what I do, but, but there are one or two responses. Like people are either really interested and kind of weirded out why I would do that with my life, or people are like nervous that I'm a pastor and, and, and don't want to really talk with me. And they'll suddenly apologize for the colorful language that they'd been using just before that. Um, but one advantage that I do have as a pastor is those who are interested, uh, man, they expect that I'll talk about Jesus, right? They expect that, that I'll talk about God in the Bible. But they're also skeptical. I think many Many just think I want to get them to come to my church so I can have a big church or, or give money to uh, the, the church I work for. But man, when, when you talk about Jesus, those who, who aren't paid by a church, it's surprising and, and it's intriguing. It, it will often catch people off guard. When they find out you're a Christian, some will pay very close attention to how you live. Right? They, they have preconceived ideas about Christians. And, and honestly, there are a lot of Christians that, that in the workplace, maybe in the neighborhood, where, where they don't necessarily feel safe, they'll keep it to themselves. So when someone finds out you're a Christian, they might be very surprised. And they, they want to they wanna watch you and they, they want to understand how, how it is that, that you live the way that you live. Even though they, they think the things maybe that you believe are weird, they see how you love people or they see how you operate ethically in your workplace. You have a testimony before them. They'll look at you and they might think, man, I didn't know Christians were that way. Martin Luther, uh, he said something pretty funny uh, about Christians. I won't get it exactly right, but he said that Christians are like manure, which isn't going good so far for us. Um, he says, get them all together and they start to stink. <laughs> Smart man. But spread them out and they'll produce fruit. I just thought, oh, that's really, that is really helpful. We're commanded, obviously, to come and do this, right? The church is to gather. It's good for us to gather on, on Sundays and throughout the week, but it isn't good for us to only be with believers. You know, we are the way for the world to hear about Jesus so we must be in places with people that do not know about Jesus so that we can talk about Jesus. In verse 4, it says the believers scattered, and what they were doing was they were preaching the word, right? which doesn't mean that they stood up like I am right now and they made this preparation to make this, uh, this, this sermon. Now, maybe that happens sometime, but, uh, sometimes, but for the most part, it just means they spoke about Jesus, right? When they were at the market, when they were at work, wherever they were, they spoke about his great love. They spoke about our need for him because of our sin. They spoke about him just wherever they went. So that, that's, that's how we get to verse 8, to see a city full of joy. It's because believers spoke about Jesus wherever they were. In verse 5, we're introduced to Philip, and it says that he ended up in Samaria. And like all the other believers uh, that were scattered, he proclaimed Jesus as well. Uh, J. Daniel Hayes wrote a book, uh, From Every People, Every Nation, a, a Biblical Theology of Race. And he says this about Jerusalem and, and Samaria. He says, we may hear, uh, and this is from Acts 1.8, in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and we think that's a whole lot of places 
He says the disciples would have heard far more than that. The movement from Judea to Samaria demanded that these early Christians cross over a long-standing ethnic, religious, and cultural boundary. Samaritans were loathed by the Jewish community. And if you've been in church long enough, you, you, you remember the woman at the well, John 4, you've probably been told that, that Jews and Samaritans did not get along. But uh, as I approach this passage, I didn't really grasp the boldness that it took for Philip to go to Samaria to preach the gospel. To the Jews, Samaria was not just a place, but a people that they looked down upon. Samaritans were considered half-breeds. Um, after Solomon, the, the kingdom divided in the north and south, ten tribes defected and made Samaria their capital. Just two remained loyal to Jerusalem. Uh, they were, uh, Samaria was captured uh, by the Assyrians around 722 B.C., and thousands were deported from the country, and the, the country was repopulated by foreigners. In the 6th century, when the Jews returned to their land, they refused the offer from the Samaritans to help rebuild the temple. Eventually, the, the Samaritans built their own temple, and it was kind of this rival temple. Um, the Samaritans didn't, uh, did not recognize all the Hebrew scriptures, only the first five books. So they were, they were viewed by the Jews as racially and religiously uh, as hybrids. And like I said, when most of us think of the Samaritans, we probably go to John 4, the woman at the well. And uh, Jesus asked this woman for a drink. And, and I think her response helps us see the hostility here. The woman responds. She says, how is it that you... A Jew asked me for a drink, a, a woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And, and you, you just think about how much ethnic tension and hatred has to exist uh, for there uh, on this scorching hot day, in the hottest part of the day, that you would not want to give water, or on the other side, you wouldn't want to receive water from this person because of where they're from. Uh, water is so basic and, and so crucial to survival, and, and yet there's this thought that you don't want to make this exchange with this person because of their bloodline. And you talk about division, you talk about hostility, right? race issues, ethnic prejudice, it's been around forever. And here's an example of the power of the gospel breaking down racial barriers. Now, for Philip, I'm guessing that it was not only that Jesus commanded to go to Samaria, but Philip also probably had heard that Jesus went there himself. And I assume that that gave him confidence to go and preach where Jesus had gone. And I didn't realize how much Luke brings up Samaria, especially compared to the other gospel writers. Outside of John 4 and the Samaritan woman, there's really very little attention given to Samaria, except for Luke. Luke, um, in, in his gospel uh, and in Acts, he gives us six significant scenes of Samaria. Uh, I'll share one more with you. In Luke 9, we, we get a sense of this hostility. Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. He's going through Samaria. He sent um, some of his followers ahead to make preparations for them. But the, the Samaritans, it says, it they would not receive him. Right? The plan didn't work out. So how do you respond? when a plan uh, doesn't go the way you thought it would. Well, I guarantee your reaction is better than James and John. In Luke 9, this is what they say to Jesus after this happens. Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Like that escalated really quickly. 
Not, not what we would expect from followers of Jesus. And, and Luke does a great job uh, of demonstrating this tension, this hostility between Samaritan and Jew. But why does Luke keep taking his readers to Samaria when the other gospel writers really don't do it much? I suspect that it's to show us, to remind us that the gospel has the power to bring ethnic unity, right? And, and is the only answer to this age-old sin. At time, ethnic unity and peace feels so impossible. And it's true, this side of heaven, you know, we will not fully see or experience the complete unity of all peoples. But the good news is that Jesus saves, and he is gathering some from every people, and he will make them one. That day is coming. Well, as the church faces this persecution and scatters, Luke zooms us in here in Samaria with Philip in verse 4. And he's a guy that he reminds me a ton of Stephen. He's really just continuing the work that Stephen did to talk about Jesus to whoever would listen. Verse 6, it says, And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. So a couple observations here. Uh, people, people paid attention. It says, with one accord. They were dialed into the good news. Uh, don't you think that one reason that we don't uh, that we we are so hesitant to share about Jesus is because we don't really believe that anyone wants to hear it? Right? We may say that the gospel is what people need, but do we believe that the gospel will grip people's hearts? Well, God has made it so that there are people that will respond, but it's not like it's not like He gives us this arrow from heaven that only Christians can see. Like, tell that guy about Jesus, tell that lady about Jesus, they'll respond. It's not that way at all. So what we have to do is share and share and share. And and there will be some who respond. There will be some that will say, Man, this is what I've been looking for. And we don't know how God is at work. Right? Maybe you have a coworker or a neighbor or even a family member that you've shared the gospel with, right? You've tried and they've just shut you down. So naturally what we do is we file that away as someone who's not interested, but we do not know what God will do over the next months or even years to soften their heart, to respond to the good news. We might write them off, but we don't have a clue how God is working. I love hearing how people come to know Jesus. Uh, Kristen, in the announcements, mentioned that, that we have membership uh, class coming up. Well, the, the last part, uh, last thing that we ask people to do to become a member is to meet with a couple of our elders. We, we call it an interview that sounds so formal and intimidating. I don't mean for it to be that way. We just don't have a better name. But we just want to get together, and, and primarily we want to hear your testimony. We want to hear how you came to know Jesus. Like, selfishly, I, I just love hearing how God brought someone from death to life. Uh, John shared his testimony a few weeks ago, and you might remember he grew up in a church with his family, but he hadn't really trusted Jesus. He went to college, and he said something about coming to this realization that, that he probably wasn't going to wake up on Sundays and make it to church on his own now that he was out of his family's house. So he gets to campus, and, and there's a, a Christian group. I think it was Campus Crusade for Christ. They were doing these spiritual surveys. Um, <laughs> Sorry. 
when John uh, when John read uh, the survey, there were a couple of questions I think that that uh, came out to him, jumped out at him. One was like, "Do you want to talk with someone about Christ?" And, and he marked like, "Yes, ten out of ten. I think the other one was basically, "Do do you want someone to explain the gospel to you?" And, and again, ten out of ten. The, the Holy Spirit was at work in him, right? Like it was it was the right time. John was ready. He was ready to receive Christ as Lord. Years ago, I, I went to church with a guy named Bob, and, and his testimony, I, I love it. He was, he was thinking a, a ton about life, thinking about God. He was, he was, uh, he was in a, a hard place in his life, and, and he, was, uh, he was like downtown or something like that. He's crossing the street, and these two women cross paths. Uh, they're crossing the other way, and, and they stopped him, and they said, can we share the gospel with you? And, and he said, Yes, right? And, and they share the gospel, and, and he gives his life to Christ. He has not been the same since. And man, the Holy Spirit prompted them. And I just wonder, like these two women, did they think, that's crazy. Like, no, I'm not going to just ask that. Like, give me something better than that, God. In my flesh, I wonder what I would have said to the Lord. Well, praise God that, that, they, that they followed this Holy Spirit's leading. Right, that just asking the question, do you want to hear the gospel, was enough. God was at work, and Bob was ready to hear the gospel. I remember back in high school, my youth group, we had this outreach, um, and uh, my youth pastor called me up front. He was having a conversation with, the, with this kid, a group of kids, but this one kid, Nathan, in particular, and, and he said, Greg, I want you to tell Nathan about Jesus. And, and, and I guarantee my youth pastor would have loved to lead this kid to the Lord, but, but he was great at, at encouraging and equipping, uh, training people up. So he looked at me and he gave me this opportunity. So I start telling Nathan about Jesus. I'm, I'm walking him through the message of the gospel. And there, there are other students around, but I was just dialed into Nathan because that's what I was, he's the guy I was told I was talking to. And, and I was almost done explaining the gospel to him. And, and then I realized this other kid next to him was dialed in. Like God was just working on his heart. I ended up leading both these, these guys to the Lord because God was at work, right? God has prepared people to respond, but they need to hear because God's made it that way. God's made it that God's people will be the ones to share the good news of salvation through Christ. I know that I've... Uh, I've told this story before, it was years ago, but uh, for, for decades, uh, we've heard uh, stories of Muslims having dreams about Jesus. Um, and, and then at some point, God, not through a dream, but, but in real life, a person, he, he brings a Christian along to tell them about Christ. Well, there's this guy, and I forget his name, but he's actually written a book on this. And one night he was coming home, and, and it was late. He wanted to get home, see his wife and his kids. And he looks, and he realizes his gas tank is on empty. And, and he's, a, he's a creature of habit, so normally he goes to the same gas station. But he's like, no, for the sake of time, I'm just going to pull in here. I don't, I don't care that it costs me more. And he, 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 he just wants to get home. He goes to the pump. He, he tries to put in his card, and it says there's some kind of error. And he needs to go see the gas attendant. And he's, he's not happy about this, right? He just he wants to get home and kiss his kids goodnight. And he goes inside, and the gas attendant is this woman. And right away, he realizes that, that she's a Muslim. And he strikes up a conversation with her. And he, he's excited. He tells his experiences overseas and in the, in the States, um, meeting Muslims. But the conversation really doesn't go anywhere towards the gospel. So he goes out, he pumps his gas, 
And he just thinks, you know what, I'm going to grab her my book. And he gets his book. He goes in to get his receipt, hands her the book, and, and explains what it's about. And her eyes just light up. And she says she's been having dreams about Jesus for like almost two decades, but no one has told her anything about him. So obviously he steps in and shares the gospel with her. But I can't help but wonder how many Christians had spoken with this woman and yet never even attempted to tell her about Jesus. I wonder today how many of us need to confess to the Lord that so often we don't share because we just don't think people will respond. We, we think that that certain person would never respond. I, I know them. I know how they think. I know their background. I know their, their church story or their non-church story. And the story of, of Saul should remind us that we really have no clue how God is working or what God will do. Our role is to share. It's the Holy Spirit that convicts and causes someone to be born again. God has prepared people to respond, and we get to share. We get to. It is the good news, right? We're, we're not pitching some pyramid scheme. No, we're sharing the news that leads to eternal life, and God will have some ready. You also notice that, that God got the attention of the Samaritans um, that Philip is speaking with by signs and wonders. And, and we see a lot of that in Acts. God performing miraculous signs. And these signs and wonders, they were not the point. But what they did was they pointed to the truth of the gospel. And, and many of us would probably love it today if we could see uh, even just one, one miracle. That would be really incredible. But for the most part, we don't seem to experience that. And there's plenty of theories on why. I'm not going to get into those. But God still gets the attention of those who do not yet know him. He still points to the truth of the good news. And it seems so often that that happens by the faithful living of God's people, being light in a dark world, not by perfect living, but by consistently living so that the world can see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. And for students, maybe that looks like you being the only one at school that, that doesn't join in about complaining about a teacher or gossiping about another student. Or, or those in the workforce, maybe it's just the way that you conduct yourself in business. Right? You're, you're ethical. You don't cut corners even though others do. To those of you that have had a rough time in recent years and your consistent trust in God, your joy in the middle of hardship is light to those around you. We want our light sometimes to be more like the grand finale of a fireworks show, but it seems that so often the light that, that God lets us have is, is this light bulb that's just consistent. It's not flashy, but it's lighting up darkness around it. God will point others to the truth of the gospel. He will validate the message to some who do not yet trust in Christ. So I want to end by asking you to consider making a goal. And I don't normally do this, but I, I want you to consider making a goal that in the next couple of weeks, you would try to share Jesus with someone. And maybe that sounds strange to you to make that kind of goal, but my guess is that we're all making goals, right? Maybe it's goals at school or work, goals for your health. We make financial goals. Why not make it a goal to work that muscle of sharing the good news with someone, asking God to give you an opportunity to talk about him, 
asking God to give you the courage to talk about him, the words to talk about him. And your brain right now might be flooded with reasons not to do this. Why? Why not bring all those reasons, though, today to the Lord in prayer and see what he says? And I think verse 8 actually speaks right to this. It counters the reasons that we have. It says, uh, actually, I'll pick up in verse 7. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And then verse 8, so there was much joy in that city. The gospel brings joy to those who receive Jesus as Lord. It truly is good news. It's the best news that your friends and your family and your neighbors and coworkers need to know. They need to know that God created us, that humanity rebelled, that we broke our relationship with God, that our sin deserved right judgment, but God sent a Savior. He sent his only son to die in our place, and he didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave, and he offers forgiveness from sin if we will trust in him as our Lord and Savior. He gives us life that starts now and lasts forever. That is truly great news, news worthy of joy. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. We thank you that, that you have, have declared the gospel and that you've invited us, your people, into, into the, the ministry of reconciliation, that, that we are a part of sharing this good news so that others can be reconciled to you, Lord. God, would you, would you increase our heart's love for you, Jesus? Maybe for a bunch of us, we just need to remember what it was like when we first came to understand the truth, when we first realized that our sins could be forgiven, when we first realized that, that you love us so much, Jesus, that you died for us. God, would you increase our love for you so, so that out of the overflow of our hearts, our mouths would speak about you. God, would you give us courage? I'm guessing that some people, as soon as I said share the gospel with someone, they knew someone that they should share the gospel with. God, give us courage. Would you help us to trust you in talking about you, Lord? Would you raise up labors for the harvest, including us, Lord? Raise up people that will talk about you, Jesus, whether it's in Camas or Washougal or, or, or way beyond. God, would you help us to speak about you, Jesus? And will we trust would we trust that there will be some that will respond to this news and, and their lives will be filled with joy for eternity. We love you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen.